0: Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to worship you. We thank you for your word. Guide and lead us as we look at this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 41. There's controversy about this chapter. Some people believe that it's talking about Abraham, which I think is a very far stretch. Some believe it's talking about Cyrus, and I can picture that. Others believe it's talking about Jesus, and that's the one that I believe it's talking about. So... (laughs) as we look at this we'll try to compare compare it and think about it uh, starting at verse one keep silent before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength let them come near let them speak let them come near together for ju- to judgment who raised up the righteous man from the east called him to his feet gave the nations before him and made him rule over the kings he gave them to as dust of for to a stored and as driven stubble for his to his bow he pursued them and passed safely even by the way that he had not gone with his feet who hath wrought and done it calling the generation from the beginning i the lord the first and with the last i am he the island saw it and feared the ends of the earth were afraid drew near and came they helped everyone his neighbor and everyone said to his brother be of good courage So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith and he that smoothed with the hammer him that smote the anvil saying it is ready for the soldering and he fastened it with nails that it should not be moved but you Israel are my servant Jacob whom I have chosen the seed of Abraham my friend you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called you unto the chief men thereof and said to them and said unto you you are my servants I have chosen you and not cast you away, all right, so we're going to look at this. Uh, starts out with "Keep silent before me, O islands." And this isn't just referring to the literal islands, but anything that could be sailed to, because the Jews looked at anything out beyond the sea as as islands. So they were not a seafaring people. They were landlocked when Solomon wanted to go get the gold from from India and everything he had to hire. Uh, sailors to take his people where he wanted to go. They never have been sailors. When you read the Word of God, they look at the they talk about the sea as being trouble and they always look at the ocean as raging and being a, being a troublesome place. They, they were not seafarers. And it says, and let the people renew or change for the better their strength. Let them come near, let them speak, let us come together for judgment, So God is saying, okay, all you islands, all you people, come together. Come together and make your case to God. And not that, not that God's saying you're going to win, but he says if you have something, make your case. And this is the same thing God tells Job at the end of the book of Job when, when Job finally gets t- you know, starts crossing the edge and really justifying himself and saying, I want to speak to God. I want to, I want to make my case to God. And God came and saw him. <laughs> And God told Job, stand up. Give your defense. Tell me if you can. And he goes on a whole long list of scientific discoveries and stuff that we're just now beginning to understand and he's go, tell me if you have an answer tell me these things. Here he's telling the nations. You you've got you've got a, you've got something to present to me. Present it. And it's kind of where I think we are today in our world. We have all these kind of people saying, "Well, we we know better than God. We're smarter. We can we know how to work everything. It's amazing to me, for as smart as we think we are, we don't know very much, all right? We can predict the weather, as long as we accept a 75% chance of being right as okay. Better than it used to be, we're getting more knowledge about how weather works. I can remember the weathermen were right 50% of the time, it was, it was pretty good predicting. Now, they're about 75% right, but even that you know, is not 100% because they do not know everything that involves the weather. And triggers it and moves it forward and God has challenged people I created this stuff I know how it works you think you have a complaint against me come and present it come and come and stand before me and make your complaint in verse 2 it says who raised the righteous man from the east calling him to his feet and gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings He gave them as dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow. This is one of those verses I don't think fits Abraham very well. He did come from the east. He came from the Ur of Chaldees. And he did rule over kings. He went to battle to to rescue Lot. He beat the seven kings. He he was very victorious in his battles, but he never really ruled over anything. He, He was a pilgrim. When he had to fight, he would win. But he never ruled. I really don't think it talks about Abraham, unless you're talking about Abraham and his descendants. uh, Because David rules, Solomon rules, many of the kings rule. But I think that's stretching this out too far. Now, this could be Cyrus. Cyrus is the king of the Medo-Persian empire. He conquers uh, Babylon at the end. He comes from the east. He definitely rules the nations. He rules the then known world. You know, and one of the things that they say, one of the reasons they say it can't be Jesus is because Jesus never went to battle. However, we know that Jesus will go to battle. At the end of the tribulation period, Jesus comes to battle, conquers the world, and rules. I really believe this is Jesus it's talking about because that's also when the end of that period of time is when they're called to the white throne judgment and people are said okay we're ready God is sitting on the throne in judgment Uh, if you have a defense now is the time to do it and he's going to hit them with every fact that, that that they cannot open their mouths and make a statement against and this is just it when we stand before God when we humble ourselves and stand before God in his word and teaching We don't have anything to say when we truly humble ourselves and repent. Because we realize that no matter how many arguments I make in my head, no matter how I try to justify myself, when I come before the God of the universe, I don't have anything to say. And I've done this many times in my lifetime, going, okay, God, you know, I did this because... And I justify it in my brain, you know, thinking that I'm talking to him, and then I'll read the word, or a pastor or a teacher will say something, and it's like, uh, well, I guess uh, God is right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a leg to stand on. God, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right? So we see here, he says, who raised the man from the east? Jesus and the Messiah are always talked about coming out of the east from the rising sun. Uh, And that's one of the things that make me lead this way. And he was called by the Father to step up. He's sitting at the right throne of heaven waiting to go and conquer this world. And this is really an interesting thing because we in our thinking always think about Jesus as the Lamb of God. And he is the Lamb of God. But there's coming a day when he was going to rise off the seat of heaven and no longer be the Lamb of God. He's going to come out as the Lion of Judah, the ruler of this world, and his mercy and grace will not be what he's known for. He'll be known for judgment and holiness and righteousness. During the millennial kingdom, he's going to rule with an iron rod. People are going to be forced to obey, and only God can truly force somebody to obey. They will be you know, we want to talk about thought police. You know, Jesus God will be the ultimate thought police. All right, angels, go get them. They were thinking about robbing that bank, go get them. And there's no defense at it. Well how do you know what I was thinking? God says, I know. I know what you were thinking. You know, what a time because during that period of time people are still gonna be evil, still have a sin nature, still desire to do wrong, and they're gonna realize that you can't get away with it. And when Satan comes and is released at the end of the thousand years, he's gonna have all kinds of people who want to sin and will join his side and rebel against God. And it's hard to believe, but Adam and Eve sinned in the perfect garden of Eden, and yet it's sometimes hard. Oh, you've spent a thousand years with Christ as your ruler. How could you rebel against him? And yet we know that the world, for the most part, is gonna rebel against him after a thousand years. And that's hard to, hard to even picture. And yet the Bible says Satan is going to gather an entire army to go against him. Now, it's not a very long war. He speaks, they're dead, and it's over. Uh, you know, Satan convinced them to rebel. They rebel and they die. You know, not, not much of a war. When you have ultimate weapons like God does, it's pretty easy to win the, win the war. And so he rises up and he gives the nation, and God gives the nations to Jesus. Now the nations were also given to Cyrus. So again, I'm not gonna make a strong case that it has to be Jesus. I just believe it's talking about Jesus. As the more I read through it, the more I believe it's talking about Jesus. Cyrus pretty much fits most of the bill. I have trouble calling right- Cyrus a righteous man. He was pretty cruel and bitter. Now he is considered righteous to the Jews because he did send them back to, back to Israel. He gave them back their land after 70 years in captivity with Babylon, he put them back in the land. And one of the things that convinced him to put them back in the land was the fact that his name was in the book of Isaiah, which was written a couple hundred years before Cyrus was even born or thought about. And I believe it was Daniel that probably showed it to him because Daniel's his ruler. He would have known. He would have said, Here, Cyrus, here's your name. Here's your name in one of our old books. It was written 200 years ago and cyrus let him go home because he was absolutely sure that the prophecy was about him after all it named him said that he was from the east said he was the ruler of the world and he decided it was about him and i'm pretty sure it was (laughs) and so he's considered righteous by the children of israel because he did something good for them but he was not a righteous ruler he was just like every other despot of that age and was evil and treated people unkindly so I have trouble calling him a righteous man all right uh, says he gave them the dust of his sword and a driven stubble of his bow he pursued them and passed safely even on the way that he had gone not gone with his feet this is one that they believe is Abraham because Abraham left Ur of Chaldees and God told him everywhere your footsteps goes will be yours Cyrus came from the East conquered the entire known world so he fits this Jesus is gonna rule the whole world and it's all his in the first place now the idea of his where his feet have not gone is a little harder for Jesus because he owns everything but in his in his lifetime when he was alive the only place he ever went was all through Israel and Samaria he didn't leave that area so again. If this is actually gonna be the millennial kingdom, and I believe it is, Jesus will have conquered that and he will travel the world in a physical body. So again, I see this as Jesus. And I'm, and I'm open to anybody wanting to say it's not Jesus, but that's okay. I mean, we wanna believe what we wanna believe, know why we believe it. <laughs> who wrought and who has wrought and done it, calling to generations from the beginning I the Lord, the first, and with the last, am he. And this is saying, who's who's, who's calling things out? Who gives prophecy? One of the greatest things about the Bible is how much prophecy is in the Bible, much of which has already come to true, and much of which has yet to be coming true. But I've heard as high as people saying a third to even two thirds of the Bible's prophecy. I don't think it's quite that high, but it is at least a third prophecy. There's a lot of prophecies in the Bible. Much of it has already come true. All the prophecies about Jesus' first coming have come true. The prophecies about Cyrus came true. Daniel's vision of the four of the, of the major kingdoms of the world came true, which is why a lot of people, when, when they looked at the book of Daniel, said, well, this book has to have been written after the fact, because he could not have known about Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire, and been able to be that accurate. Because it is very accurate. When he says it was going to split in two, it split in two. When he says it split into ten, it split into ten. Where he said it you know, it was it, uh, dwindled away, it dwindled away. So people were absolutely sure that it had to have been written afterwards, which is one of the great things about finding it in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they're going, whoop! That takes care of that. We know that those are before Roman Empire, and it kind of took the wind out of their sails. You know, they, they might have still been ridden, you know, after Nebuchadnezzar and, and Cyrus, but it definitely wasn't ridden after Alexander the Great and Caesar. So, and we know that it wasn't anyway. It was written during the time of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, because that's when it was, the dream was interpreted for him. So right at the very beginning of the first kingdom, it was interpreted. And so we look at this and it says he gives out the beginning and the last. And I love this. It says, I am the Lord, the first and with the last. All right. It's not saying I will be with the last, but I am with the last. And this goes back to what I keep saying over and over. God is eternal. He is with the beginning, even right now. He is at the end right now and he's dealing with us right now. Kind of an amazing, amazing thought. And here he's saying, I'm eternal. I'm internal, I'm outside of time. And this is the wonderful thing about our God. When he predicts the future, it's not much of a prediction. For him, it's just reading the history. Uh, I'm there, <laughs> what would you like to know about, what would you like to know about the next thousand years? Uh, I'm there, what would you like to know about him? That's where he's at. He says, And this is why his challenge for people is tell me what's going to happen tell me the future you think you're a god you think you know things tell me what's going to happen and be right this is why in the Pentateuch he said that if a prophet speaks for God and doesn't and what he says does not come true they're worthy of death because they say I'm speaking for God this is going to happen you better be speaking for God and you better be right and it better not be well. You know, I told you this uh, such a flowery language that you can interpret it any way you possibly want. No, when God gives a prediction, it's Cyrus will re- my good shepherd will return the people to the land of Israel. My my Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. He will come out of Judea. He will be called a Nazarene. He will be. <laughs> He will die a death that doesn't exist because we're going to be put on a cross and hung on a tree and nailed to a tree. He's going to ro- be buried with the, with the rich, in a rich man's grave that it wasn't his own, and he's going to be resurrected. All these things, and we look and go, all right, that's very specific. You can't make those flowery. Well, you know, he was born near Bethlehem. You now He was born on earth. It's close enough to Bethlehem to matter. <laughs> You know he was born in the Middle East you know and we're gonna hear that kind of things from the Antichrist when he rises up when he wants to show that he's God he is the Messiah he's got to be able to look at these scriptures and say here's what it is here's what here's what happened he's got to have a perfect body as the as the Passover lamb with no scars no broken bones no no injuries Do you realize how hard that was going to be for somebody who's a carpenter to have no scars, no injuries, no imperfections. And yet that happened because he couldn't be the spotless lamb with uh, with imperfections. You know, all of these things come in, and he has all these layers upon layer upon layer of truth and prophecy, which is why, because there's so much fulfilled prophecy, the things that aren't fulfilled, we can look at and say, yep, they're going to happen. We know they're going to happen. An army is going to rise up and attack Israel. We know we can see it already. Everybody and their brother in the Middle East wants to go up, and most of the world is ready to go at, at war with Israel. Right now, today, they're ready to go to war against Israel. We're already having people that are talking about economic war with Israel, all this, all this idea of sanctioning them and not dealing with them, trying to destroy them and put them under. You know, We've got all these things going on, and God said these things are going to happen. The wonderful thing about the scriptures is... It's so full of prophecy and God challenges, and this chapter is one of those challenges. Tell me if you can. Go out there. Tell me. Tell, you know, we're going to talk about idols here in a moment. And goes, You know, you think you're wonderful, you idols? You, t- you tell the future. You know, you, you give a prediction for the future. You tell what's going to happen, and you better be right. All right? And this is our God saying, I'm I, the first and with the last. I am He. I am. When Jesus told the disciples before Abraham was, I am, he knew what he was telling the, telling the Pharisees. And the Pharisees understood what he said. A lot of people will tell you, Jesus never claimed to be God. That one statement, he was claiming to be God. And the Pharisees knew that he was claiming to be God because he said before Abraham was, I am. He wasn't saying, I am a man, I am a carpenter. He said before Abraham was, i am and they picked up stones to 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 uh, stone him because he was speaking blasphemy as far as they were concerned he in their mind they knew he claimed to be god so when you hear people say jesus never claimed to be god that's a lie he claimed to be god very clearly on at least one occasion you know he did uh and and a couple of other places where he said i am the living water and we know that that's talking about god you know, many places he said, I am the bread of life. You know, he was very clearly saying, I'm God. God gives you a provision. He waters you. He, he is, and by the way, I am. And this is what he was saying, and here he's saying it again. I was, I was with the first, I am the first, and with the last, I am he. Verse 5 says, The island saw and feared, the ends of the earth were afraid, draw near and come they helped everyone his neighbor and everyone said to his brother be of good courage They're all encouraging one another and you know this is something that becomes very interesting we have a very fractured civilization right now there's people on all sides of the coin but everybody will come together to go against God it's an amazing thing you know we they will disagree on every topic under the Sun but when it comes to going against God in the church they will join forces and attack. And it's a very sad thing, and here they are, let's, let's get together, let's help, let's hold each other up. You know, we're fighting God, but we can do it. You know, Satan has that same deception. He, and he has it worse because he actually stood before the presence of God and knows God and turned his back on God. And he knows God's power. He was there at the creation of the universe. He was crea- there at the creation of this world. He was there at the creation of man. And yet he somehow thinks that he can be equal to God. Now, be very careful. Most people say he wants to be, be God or be above God. No, he wants to be equal with God. He wants to sit on the throne next to God. He knows he's not big enough, strong enough, powerful enough to be above God because when we read the i wills i will ascend to the mountain i will be like the most high his statement was i'm going to be like god or i'm going to be a god you know not above him but i will be like god that's his whole thing what was his temptation to adam and eve with eve the day you eat of that fruit fruit you will be like god same exact temptation that he fell to and Eve took it, hook, line, and sinker and fell. And Adam came right along beside her and, and took of the fruit, and he wasn't deceived, it said he did it willingly. Why he did it, I have no idea. Yeah. Maybe and I, I kinda have a, a suspicion that it was because he loved Eve so much that he couldn't picture being without her. And that was what was gonna happen. She was gonna die and he would live forever. And I think his love for her made him make a sacri- had to make a sacrifice or led to that sacrifice. Because how much is done in the name of love? You know, sometimes stupid things are done in the name of love, not just good things. But really stupid things can be done because you love somebody that much. I almost think that that's what Adam wa- was doing when he voluntarily made his sacrifice to give up. Thing, But it was something that made them know right from wrong. And just being disobedient makes you know right from wrong. <laughs> but we look here and he says, I was with the first, I am with the last. It says, the islands drew near, and he goes, and the people said, they're encouraging another, and be of good courage. Then, in the middle of this, we have this little verse 7. And the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smoothed with the hammer, him that smote with the anvil, saying, it is ready for the soldering, and he fastened it with nails, that it should not be moved. These are idol makers. The carpenter could literally be a carpenter or a, work, a craftsman. It could be either, either one. And he's encouraging the goldsmith and him that hammers out the gold and smooths it out. And then they get to the end and they say, okay, it's ready to be soldered. We'll have joints and rivets put to it so they can nail it up. How would you like to worship a god that has to be nailed in place? Now, we're going to nail this thing down. We're going to make sure it doesn't fall with nails. That's a powerful God to be bowing, bowing down to. You know, it has to be cemented to the ground, nailed to the ground, You know, held up by wires, whatever. And this is what people worshipped. When Dagon bowed before the Ark of the Covenant in the, in the temple, what did they do? They picked him back up. They nailed him back into place. Next morning, they found him bowed down with all the parts of it broken apart. You know, and yet, they wouldn't worship the god that was able to dishonor their god. You know, it just Things like that don't make any sense, and yet how easy it is for us to put idols in our life. Now, we may not put literal wooden and golden idols in our life, but we all have idols in our life at some point. You know, it might be work, family, our entertainment, television, our hobbies, sports. I know lots of people, sports are their their idol. They've got to, sports overrule everything. uh, Football fans on Sunday morning have to make a hard choice. Am I going to church or am I going to stay home and watch football? And heaven help you when you get to the Super Bowl. And I've heard the arguments, well, it's only one game a year. Okay, so one game a year, I say that God doesn't matter. I don't believe that. (laughs) When I was growing up, I was a football fan. I really was, but I went to church. I watched as much football as I could between church and never watched a Super Bowl live. I taped them and very rarely watched it because somebody would tell me the score before I had a chance to watch the tape. Really never watched the Super Bowls. Why? Because I, said I had made a decision I was honoring God. And one of the things that really bothered me in this day and age is how many churches take the summer off. There's churches that literally take, they, they, not their Sunday morning, they'll have Sunday morning, all, but they'll cancel Sunday nights, Thursday nights, uh, Wednesday nights. If they have cell groups, they will cancel the cell groups because everybody is just way too busy all summer long to serve God. So let's make an idol of their entertainment of summer and place it above God. Now, and I'm not their judge. I mean, that's, those pastors are going to have to stand up before God and say why they let people have an idol before God all summer long you know I can't do that I can't justify that and I won't but there's a lot of churches doing this kind of stuff you know during the summer months, you can't serve God why (laughs) okay so you take a vacation so the people are taking vacations the attendance is going to be down because on the day that the weeks that those people are on vacation great let those who are serving God be there and hopefully when they're on vacation they'll go to church on that Sunday anyway I go to church when I'm away from from home I go to church on Sunday morning, I will be in a church somewhere, even if I'm on vacation. My kids always knew that the few times we took vacations anywhere, we were in church, taking time off from God. The, the summer activities are more important than God. That's an idol. Now, they're not going to accept that as an idol. They're not going to see that as an idol. They're just saying their idea would be, well, we don't have enough people. We're not going to burn the electricity or whatever. Whatever their logic is, I don't know. I have so much trouble getting people to serve during the summer I'm going to just cancel summer activities the people who say it honestly believe it the pastors who have done this and said this they're good men I I really appreciate many of them that I know they will do this they have an idol that is above God and it's sad it's sad now I'm sure I have idols in my life I'm sure I do we all have something that we place at times above God we need to be careful with it and be able to recognize our idols because it is easy to put an idol and anything that is placed above God is an idol, whatever it might be. For a lot of women, at least in the older days, it was family. Family was more important than anything else. And that would mean staying home from church if they needed to and whatever it took. And family, for many men, it becomes work. I've got to go to work. And we'll justify it. My family needs this income. This income, I'm the one that puts bread on the table. I'm the one that keeps the electric on, the, on and, the, and the gas in the cars and pays the bills. I'm the one that has to do these things. And if I'm not doing it, none of this stuff will get done. And we would be out on the street. So God wants me to work. And it's true that God wants us to work, but not to the exclusion of him. And very important. This is why the Sabbath day is so important. And I really believe in a Sabbath. We need to take a day of rest. Now, whether that's going to be Saturday or not, that's, I'm going to leave that to each individual, but we need a day when we rest. I know a pastor that I sat in this church and I always told him he needed to take a day off. And, it, and his attitude was, I enjoy doing what I'm doing when I'm building, working on the church property and doing the gardening and doing the construction. I go, God says you need a day off. you know and that's what most people will enjoy it the day off that god gave us for sabbath was basically when did he give it to adam and eve he says rest one day a week there was no toil in their work you know basically and i love the way dale tackett says quit playing for at least one day a week and, and pay attention to god i love that my day off is not for me to enjoy life i love to work it was no problem to me to work my day off is to focus on God and put my attention on Him. And that is the value of that day off. I stopped doing... Even I fully love my job. And I've had many jobs that I have loved. I have been very fortunate to follow the adage of if you if you enjoy enjoy what you're doing for work, you never work a day in your life. And I've had several jobs that have been that way that I just do because I enjoy them. And I would do them if I got paid or not, that's right now as a pastor, I'm doing what I love. It's fun. It's great to be paid to do what I would do anyway. <laughs> but it is so much fun. And I had to be careful to say I need time off. I need to sit back and just take time off. Because I am a workaholic. And I enjoy, even at the prison, I get to teach, which I love teaching. I get to teach computers, my second favorite topic. you know Bibles by far number one. computers is number two, so I get to do what I enjoy doing now that my class has started, and I had to be careful to make sure I take rest and working two days it's hard to find rest. I guard my days off very you know my nights off very very jealously, and when I have a day off from work and both jobs, it's nice to be able to just relax and and just be paying attention to God more and this is where he says he says these guys are building this idol all of a sudden just thrown in there just thrown in there he's talking about himself and then he throws in there these guys are making an idol verse 8 but you Israel are my servant Jacob whom I have chosen the seed of Abraham my friend this is Abraham's title friend of God and how do we get that Way back in Genesis, when God is ready to destroy Sodom, God comes to him in the the person of Jesus Christ. And one of the sentences that he says in in that section is, shall I hide from my friend what is about to happen? And that's when they talk about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you know the story, Abraham goes, well, God, would you destroy it if there were 50 people? Would you destroy it if there were 40 30 people? Would you destroy it if there were 20 people? Gets down to 10 people. Well, God, would you destroy it for 10 people? Abraham stops at 10 people. I think if he had gone down further, God would have still said yes, and Sodom would have been saved. But in Abraham's mind, he believes there's 10 10 righteous people in that that city. His brother Lot and his wife, he's assuming, are, are are righteous, and they were. They're the ones rescued. He knows that Lot has two daughters at home and it says he's got daughters that have husbands. So we have at least 10 people in that, that city that should be righteous if Lot has done his job. So, at least. And that's assuming there were only two daughters married, so that's two daughters and their husbands, which are four, you know, plus Plus his two daughters who have their engaged, you know, the, that they were engaged in, and Lot and, uh, Lot and his wife. So Abraham's sure, there's 10 people in that town that are righteous. And he stops begging God at 10. And there weren't even that many. And, you know, he call, Lot calls his daughters and their families, and they go, no, you're, 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 fool, you're foolish. You're, you don't know what you're talking about. We like our life of sin. Lot's wife wasn't all that righteous either. She looks back. And it's turned into a pillar of salt. Why was she looking back? Probably missed the stuff. Because they were being taken out of town without extra clothes, without their furniture, without anything. And she looks back at what what she's missing. What happens to Israel when they leave Egypt? They're always griping. Well, back in Egypt, we had all the wonderful delicacies. We had garlic. We had leeks. We had cucumbers. We had melons. Now, I don't know that they had that stuff that often. They were slaves. How easy is it for us to forget the bad of our situation? And this is our danger when we start walking with God and we start looking back at the world. Well, you know, God, I used to have so much fun when I was at the bar. You know, having those nights when drinking and all the friends I had. And we forget the hangovers, the stupid things we did, when the loss, the loss of money. All we remember is we had a little bit of fun. And sin does have fun. And we've got to be careful that we don't remember the sin the fun part of sin, and forget the drawback of, of the sin. That was Lot's wife, forgetting the drawback of sin and looking back and saying, "I want." Turned into a plural salt. The children of Israel looking back and saying, "Well, you know, we're out here eating this manna. You know, all we got is manna. It's keeping us healthy. It's keeping us on our feet for 40 years. We, it, our feet aren't swelling. We haven't we haven't run out of you know haven't outgrown our food. We're not getting fat. We're healthy, but." All we have is this manna <laughs> and water. you know, I missed my onions and my leeks and my garlic and all that other stuff that I used to have. yeah, I was beat up every day with the whip and I had to hard, work real hard, but I had good food. it wasn 't this manna, <laughs> and that was the kind of tone they were using manna again, and I can almost picture that forty years of manna probably got tiring and as much as much as I like certain foods, I worked for Eight year, uh, Ten years in the pizza business, I got tired of pizza after a while. I worked for two years in a steak place. I love steak. I never thought I'd ever get tired of steak. After two years in the steak place, I didn't even want to smell a steak for a while. All right? You can get tired of something pretty quick. And I, can, I can picture this. Losing their thankfulness for what God had done made them loathe what God had blessed. We do that oftentimes in our own life. We get the blessings of God, we're all excited about it, we're happy about it, and then we stop thinking of it as a blessing, and we start getting a loathing for it. Oh God, you know, I don't know, in with with pastors and ministries, God, you put me in this ministry, these people are nothing but trouble. You know, oh God, I know some of them are growing, but man, you know just you know look at look at look at all these people who are just casting all their problems on me and there's nothing but you know, problems and every day they want me to come up with something to speak to them and teach them about you know, if you're not careful you can end up having that kind of attitude about what you looked at and said I'm blessed I'm called to do and we do this mothers do that in our generation they want to be mothers but then when they find out how hard motherhood is and the world tell them and, telling them you're wasting your time being a mother and they get dis- dissatisfied with it and now the child's a problem the child is nothing but a problem. And one of the problems we have is, is people put off having children until much later in their life. Now the child really is a problem. We used to go out and we were able to take cruises. If we just wanted to leave on the weekend, we'd just go out and, and hang out on a, on a weekend, weekend adventure and just leave town. And now we've got this kid that has to be taken care of. You know, this kid is just ruining our lives. Matter of fact, that kid is costing us all the money. We've got we to feed that kid every day. We've got we to put a bed together. We've got to put clothes on that kid. And now look how fast he outgrows those clothes. And if he, doesn't, if he or she doesn't outgrow them, they're tearing holes in it by playing. playing. And those shoes, we just bought them three months ago and they're already torn apart. And we just can get really disappointed with something that should be a blessing because they came in and they interrupted our life. That's one of the problems with pushing kids off to a later, later time if you get married, you have your kids, it's like, okay, well, we got kids. <laughs> we're gonna, we were already sacrificing, now we'll make more sacrifices. But when you have your life, and I've seen it, you've got your lifestyle. Both of you are working, you're living on two incomes, you've got two cars, you've got all this stuff, and all of a sudden a kid comes along. And now all of a sudden you've got babysitting charges, or somebody's got to quit work, and then you really got to tighten the belt because now I don't have the money for my vacations. I don't have money for the big screen TV. I don't have money to go out to eat every, every weekend like I was doing. And we, get, and we look at these blessings as a chain, ball and chain. And this can be true of anything that God has given us. We get happy with it and all of a sudden we start lo- forgetting that it's a blessing. And we go, oh, man, what a drudgery. I've got to do this. You want me to do this? And this is where we get with it. Uh, you know, but Abraham, a friend of God, in verse 9, whom, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called you from the chief man thereof, and said unto you, You are my servant, I have chosen you, and not cast you away. This can be definitely Israel. Israel has been called back from destruction twice, one, or three times actually. Abraham called out of the Ur of Chaldees and made a nation. So there's one time when they're called out. They were captured by Babylon and made into servants and scattered all through the Babylonian Empire. And Cyrus calls them back and sends them back to Jerusalem. After that, they're dispersed again by the Roman Empire. And they haven't come back until 1948 when they were called back to be a nation. Yeah. It's an amazing, amazing story about the Jewish people. They keep getting kicked out of their land and keep getting called back by God. And they don't fully recognize that it's God. And it's, but it's so funny because you talk to them, you see these Israelites being, being uh, interviewed, and they'll talk about how they don't believe in God, and yet they'll say God gave them their land. It's you know kind of bizarre. They, they practice Passover, and they'll talk about how God delivered them out of Egypt. And yet they'll tell you, I don't believe in God schizophrenia when somebody is not related to god their thinking can be so schizophrenic that it's ridiculous they believe in god one moment they don't believe him in the next they think god's helping them they think god god hates them at the same in the same in the same breath and the problem that we're having in our world today the further people get away from god the more stupid they're becoming the more schizophrenic they're becoming because the flesh does not want to believe in anything good, wants, wants evil, but wants everybody else to be good. And, I, and one of the things I find to be very strange, everybody wants grace and mercy, but they don't want to give it to anybody. They want to have the freedom to do whatever it is they want to do, but they don't want to let other people have the freedom to do what they want to do. And this is the human nature. Me first, me, me and me only, as a matter of fact. Not just me first, but me and me only. As long as I'm happy, you guys can do whatever you want, but don't make me unhappy. And this is a serious place that we're at in our world. Our world right now is becoming a very me-centered world. You, you, if you get hurt, you immediately want somebody to pay. Even if you were stupid and caused it, you want somebody else to pay for you stu- your stupidity. And case in point, you know, when you have to put a warning on a lawnmower, do not put your hand underneath the blade because there's a blade. It tells you that somebody sued and won because they weren't told not to. You know, on our bags now, do not put this bag over your head. That means somebody sued because somebody put the bag over their head and won. That's the stupid thing. They won for being stupid. But this is where we're at in our time. God is saying, here, you're my servant, I chose you. I have taken you out. But the key to this whole process is, God says, you're my servant. We as Christians are his servant. We're to live as his servant. If God tells us to do something, our answer isn't, you know, well, okay, I'm going to begrudgingly do it, but it really should be, okay, God, you said jump how high? You want to hole dug How deep? You want me to give my life for others? All right, God, I'm doing it. I'm going to pour out everything I have to you for them. Most of people who claim to be Christians have no idea of servanthood. God is the Lord and Master. He is the sovereign of the universe, and when he says something, he expects to be obeyed. Now, we will have a rest. Our rest will come when we go to heaven and we get our mansions. We get our rewards, and, but while we're on this world, while it's daylight, we're to serve. We're to do whatever he asks. And this is why Paul said, these light afflictions are nothing compared with heaven. And he was really saying, I poured out everything. God has asked me to serve. I'm going to serve wholeheartedly all the time while I've got life. All we're going to do is live 120 years, 200 years max. you know. And God says, I want you to serve me. I want you to serve me. I love reading these stories about the servants who are, who are preaching, who are teaching, who are ministering to God to the day of their death. Yes, they may have slowed down a little bit because their bodies have worn out, but they're still serving. Was listening to a story about an evangelist, and he was still working an evangelistic cir- circuit when he finally died of a heart attack at age 77. Then he was in the, still working the circuit, out there preaching all the time. Not as much as when he was younger. He was down to only about 13 or 14 you know, sermons a month instead of one every single day. But he was still preaching. He was still reaching out and then died of a heart attack. He gets to go to heaven. He gets to rest. And that's how the servant of God looks. God, I want, to, I want to pour out my life to you. I want to do whatever it is you want me to do. When I get old and tired, I'll still want to do as much as I possibly can. I'm going to still serve you. And then one day, you're going to take me home. And then I get to rest. And I told you all, my dream would be to die preaching. And one side of me, I don't want that to happen. It would traumatize the church if I died in the middle of preaching. But my dream would be doing what I love and preaching the word of God and dying while doing what I love to do. Uh, on the other side, I don't want to see it happen because I don't want to traumatize the church watching, watching somebody die. Is that our attitude toward God? Are we willing to serve him no matter what he asks us to do? You know, whatever sacrifice he asks us to do, when we compare it to heaven, no sacrifice on this earth is too much for God. And we need to be able to say, God, I want to do what you want me to do. And this is the true thing. A servant, even in today's world, a servant does what the, the master of the house requests. All right? and we don't have as many servants as we used to, there. But there used to be servants, and the butlers were there watching, and they were there the minute they were needed. The the servers at the table were there the minute they were needed. You know, they looked for certain signs that they were being that their needs were being, and their job was to meet that need. And Jesus himself said, the servant at the end of a hard day's work is not told sit down while well, you know sit down and you'll be eat your food before you feed me. He says, no, feed me. Then, once I'm taken care of, you can go take care of yourself. That's what's expected of us as his followers. Meet whatever he asks us to do at whatever cost it is to our personal desires. God has never promised us that we are going to be uh, rich and famous and people of leisure. He said, you are my servants. And he expects us to work for him to accomplish things for him and it may be the businessman who just gives lots of money and support to the to to God's work that's his that's his you know and this is many of these rich men have been Christians have given God 80 90% of their profits and said this is my gift I can't go out to the mission field but I am going to support what I can because I'm good at making money and God here here's your money now are all of us called to give you know that much no do you know, when it's time to call, do we go, God, no, not going to give it. You know, God, I'm having enough trouble giving you my 10%. You know, and many people don't even give him 10%. But, you know, we need to be able to look at it and say, God, what is it that you want? I'm willing to make the sacrifices for you for eternal reward. And what those rewards are, I don't know. I'm looking forward to whatever rewards I get from God because of what he's done through me. But I want to serve them. My Greatest desire is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your reward. That is what I want to hear. And I want to do the best I can to hear those words. You know, because that would be glory. To get the praise of the master, you have done your service well. Paul was able to say what most people can't say. I've poured out everything, I have not I have not missed one opportunity. I don't know if he was saying that by grace, or if he literally meant he had never missed an opportunity. I can't say I've never missed an opportunity. I've taken a lot of them, but I can't say that I haven't missed an opportunity. I know there have been many that I have missed that should have been taken. But I strive to do what God wants. When I know what he wants, I strive to do what he wants. Give what he wants. Help Help where he wants and be able to reach out and this is our goal we are his servants and we need to look at ourselves as servants we take care of the master first and when we die and we go to heaven we're no longer servants we are the bride of christ we are royal family in maturity at that point in time at that time we will have eternity to be able to rest and not work I believe there's going to be work in heaven, but, you know, again, we go back to the Garden of Eden. How hard is it to work in a perfect environment? Nothing dies, nothing decays, nothing goes bad. How hard would it be to work in that environment? Pretty easy. And God will give us a job that we're perfectly geared to do, equipped to do, and we'll do it right, because we'll have perfect bodies, so we'll be doing it right, and we'll enjoy doing it. It won't be work. We'll have to take our our every seventh day off. (laughs) You know, to rest because we are enjoying work so much. What will it mean? I don't know. I could picture, I could be a teacher the rest of my life and never, never feel like I'm working. To me, it's fun to study. It's fun, it's fun to present what I learn. That's just a blast to me. Put a hammer and saw in my hand, and that's not what I want to do. You know, lug things around out in the heat. That's not what I want to do. I know people that like that. They like to do that kind of stuff. That, that to them is fun. It's not fun to me. I would, I would rather not go anywhere near it, if, it all, if, if at all possible. I would never want to do that kind of work. I've done it. I've had to do it. I've participated in it. But it's not what I want to do. That is where I get to serve. Yeah. Okay, God, you really want me to be the one lugging the, lugging the bricks and the, and the boards? I'm not nailing them. I'm not going to, but I'll lug them back and forth. I can do that. All right. No, not going to be happy about it, God, but I can do that. But I'll be happy because I'm serving you. And that's the thing about it. Will I put my needs in subjection to serving God and doing what he wants done? And you know the greatest blessings on? Not only are there eternal blessings, but God blesses in this lifetime for obedience. Just to watch people as you're serving and get to watch how they respond to God working through you. And people getting saved and people being touched and people being altered in their life. And it's just so much fun serving God and saying, all right, God, thank you. And you, you're giving me this blessing here, God, where I get to see these people change, and you're going to give me a reward in heaven as well? You know, as long as I don't get too proud and you know, start blowing my trumpet down here, he's going to give me a reward in heaven for everything that's done here where people have grown and been ministered to. I love God's plan. I really do love God's plan because he does exactly what the world is looking for. The world wants the job where somebody else does the work and they get paid. And that's God's job. He says, all I want you to do is be crucified, let me work through you, and by the way, I'm going to throw in rewards for you in heaven. And some rewards while you're down there too. What a blessing. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together. We ask you to guide and lead us. Lord, help us always to put our trust in you and learn to just be your servants just as you, Jesus, obeyed the Father to come to the world and die. And you took a horrible death and took it willingly for us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.